seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. Is there a word that cannot be said? Is it really a word if it's just in your head? Language grew from grunts and sighs, evolving over time into truths and lies. The whys, the whats, the ifs, the buts, the slang we say to say, what's up? Because words are magic, words have power. We wizards watch them from our ivory tower. And as I gaze down from my lofty perch, my eyes conduct a little search. Looking high, looking low, looking for the ungoogleable Michelangelo. Because if he can't be Googled, are we sure he's real? Or is that ungoogleability his whole appeal? His surreal words play across the page, his ink and paint make positive image. The world's a stage, the screen a show, this psychedelic chapel of Michelangelo. If the medium is the message, he wears an extra large, a telescopic intellect aimed out at distant stars. If space is the place and the only time is now, his latest work, Impatient Transformations, will surely show us how. Or maybe when, or if not, then. I might have messed this up, my friend. I'm trying to learn your ways of rhyme. So take your turn. It's about damn time. Clocks. What a waste of timelessness. Watch. In cities, very few people have time. Yet their wrists are shackled to it. With no time to be in the now. Ever bound to their schedules. They rush to get to the future. They don't sense who or what is present. They have no time for eternity. And with no time to space out, devout, they face the future. But don't get me wrong, people in the present can be real inconsiderate assholes too. Always. Denying everyone their past and future. Don't they understand we have other places to be? Besides here and now. Last night, 324, 325, and 326 got rolled up into a spliff. The rotation was clockwise, but we only had a digital time-telling device. Confusion ensued. It took forever to get here, but when it finally reached me, I took a hit, and it tasted distinctly like 323 though this could not be verified. And every time I tried to tell time, time was telling me. It was heartfelt, and it never skipped a beat. But the clock kept changing its story by the minute. Some reasoned that time is money. I wouldn't buy it for a second. I decided to stick around for a spell. 
Some say time is a man-made concept, but I think man is a time-made concept. So here we are, for the time being. For the time being. With poems about time and podcasts about space, this ritual will now take its place. As you, dear listener, embrace the absurd, and together we learn how to weave our words. Greetings, friend. Greetings. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we're already flipping things around in time because normally there's a warm-up exercise that I like to do before we officially start recording. But considering the layers of language I'm already expecting us to just dive through in this episode, I think it was worth putting it into the actual recording episode. So we're going to do a little bit of one-word storytelling. Are you familiar with this game? No, tell me about it. Okay, it's an old improv exercise, but basically you and I will go back and forth one word at a time, and our goal is to sort of do our best to make a story. So not, you know, lasagna, octopus, hotel, pilot, just like random nouns, Mm -hmm. but once upon a time, like that kind of thing. You can throw in punctuation points, and when it feels like we've completed a proper sentence, we'll go ahead and we'll just end it there. Nice. So do you want to go first or second? I'll go second. I'll let you uh, spark it up. Okay. We are finding ourselves in a system of conversational magic. Exclamation point. All right. (laughs) Asterisk. (laughs) <laughs> that that that's pretty much the summary of this podcast episode. Nice. So there we go. Yeah, we already got our tagline. We've arrived in the right place. What's our magic word going to be? Bibliomancy. Bibliomancy. Ooh, fun one. Mm-hmm. So on the count of three, one, two, three. Bibliomancy. Why bibliomancy? I like how bubbly it sounds. I could have said mm-hmm. bubbliomancy. Um, but also because I've got my new book out, and I like the idea of bibliomancy because it can come from two sides. Like on the one hand, it can be the divination through achieved through opening a book at a random page mm-hmm. and kind of letting whatever is on the page speak to you as an oracle. But also in the making of a book, there's a kind of bibliomantic, um, like the summoning of the text and mm-hmm. the imagery and the organization of it, I think, is its own kind of divinatory ritual. Yeah. Yeah. Pulling pulling ideas out of the nothingness that exists uh, at the center of creativity and uh, then exactly. turning it into symbols on, on printed paper. Yeah, and I, seeing, seeing how things fall into place. Like I, in all of my creative endeavors... Uh, I like to preface it, like you'll hear this in my podcast and in my books. Um, It's always prefaced by saying, this is made possible by the aleatoric organization in association with the divine design. Mm. And the aleatoric organization is just a fancy way of saying like a chance-based organization. But it sounds Mm -hmm. also like an institution in a way, right? Like the organization. But so it's just the algorithm of randomness and then bringing that in accordance with the divine design, which is just how we magnetize meaning and organization as it naturally occurs. Like somewhere in that tension, I think beautiful things happen. Well put. And um, there's a there's a book I love from the 80s called The Grammatical Man, and it talks a lot about evolution and randomness and how um, 
language, there's rules of grammar, which kind of define that randomness. I'm sure you're familiar with that thing where you can scramble the letters of a word, but as long as I think like the first and last are the same, people can recognize it pretty instantly. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, similarly, if we're, you know, dropping nouns out for nonsense words it makes sense still because there's that pattern that we can go oh i don't know what a blue orp is but i i got the gist of the sentence otherwise whereas if you actually do a real word salad with no syntax it's completely unintelligible right and similarly i think that the grammar it has its own internal logic like like just like the way we constructed our magical sentence earlier Mm -hmm. on just things have a way of Sentences have a way of self-assembling. And there's a beauty when we let the what's coming through the channel get ahead of the medium in a way. If you can allow yourself to speak freely and then interpret what comes out, I think that's kind of where a lot of poetry happens. Well, I think it's 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 all something that we do every day without realizing it. But I am currently forming a sentence without a clear vision of what the final word in the sentence will be. So I'm a little bit like, you know, Wiley Coyote, where I've left the <laughs> the edge of my planning and I'm now floating in the air. And we do this all the time and we're just we don't yeah. worry about it. That's a great Wiley Coyote is a great metaphor for that, too, because it is your kind of like building the path as you're walking through the air and at some point you might stop mid-sentence and you need an um as a kind of sky buoy just to be able to (laughs) (laughs) to stay afloat while you continue building your road your sky road so before we get too far astray i want to talk about one more form of bibliomancy though which uh i i love i love books i'm not like an obsessive book collector but i like physical books and owning them and i love this form of magic, which maybe you're familiar with, where you buy more books than you can read. So mm-hmm. your your interest in new books is always outpacing. So your library is a mix of books that you've read and you're like, this is a great book. And then books that are missing because you gave them to a friend. And then books that you know that you want to read but haven't read yet. And they just sit there in this sort of limbo state until suddenly you finish that other book or you're going on a trip and you need something for the airplane. And then you're like, ah, this book now. And then when it really clicks, when suddenly you're reading that book and you're like, holy shit, this is such the right book for this right time in my life. I can't believe that I bought it at a bookstore three years ago in Venice beach. And now here I am in France reading it. And it's like exactly what I needed. Yes, I can relate to that. And that's how I feel about this conversation, because you've been on my radar for a while and it's been like, okay, at some point we're going to we're going to cross pods and have some cross pollination going on there. Uh, And now that moment has arrived and we're in it. And it's impossible to research you uh, because you're literally (laughs) on Googleable. So uh, tell us just give us a little bit overview of who you are and what you do. I've had to come up with a bunch of terms to describe what I do. It's kind of like job creation in a way. Like they always mm-hmm. say, like, uh, we're creating new jobs. So I'll just create new job descriptions for myself. Yeah, you're a code uh, ninja. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a, a multidimensional artist. Um, I like to think of myself as a bardo bard. It's a mm. kind of poet of liminal spaces. I like to push through my various forms of expression, which span through image, sound, and word. I like to push where the limits of language meet the fringes of reality. And yeah. I like to say I am here to serve the lore. So it's always a matter of storytelling and it finds different expressions through written and spoken words, through podcasting, through visual art, through filmmaking, music, 
uh, and performance. Just everything. What don't you do? <laughs> um, good question. I'll figure it out. There's a lot of instruments I don't play, but okay. I, another Wiley Coyote reference. I, I have a catchphrase that is um, "disguise the limit," mm. which is kind of the Wiley Coyote way as well. You know, you paint a portal on the wall, and the Roadrunner goes through it. So, yeah. what seemed like a trap or a limitation actually becomes a springboard into another dimension. Yeah. So, so even the things that I don't know how to do or don't do well, I can still hopefully communicate to people who can do that so that they may extend my limitations, which is what I did with music. A lot of times I used to say, I don't play instruments. I play instrumentalists. <laughs> I would just like <laughs> uh, vocally make the sounds or tell them what I was looking for descriptively yeah. and then uh, compose that way. I love it. I mean, I think that is one of the most wonderful parts of collaboration is the the sort of cyborg extension beyond my own talents, abilities and uh, patience to find somebody who's really good at something, but perhaps is even looking for that spark of push me in a new direction, help me find something exactly. that I'm not going to just play my same scales over and over. Yep. And they're trust based venues, ventures as well, you know? Like yeah. you're dealing with other people and you trust in their abilities. You trust that the choices they're going to make to extend it are attuned to the original vision. Because I think as a creative, so much of it, like we can't claim the creation. Like there's mm -hmm. still like there's an element we, we pick up on something, whether that's completed ahead in time or not. We, we catch like some glimpse of it and we try to communicate that to others when, in collaboration. And hopefully they'll find the same vision through the direction and then you can all kind of move to the rhythm of the same transcendental octopus <laughs> yeah well i think you and i fish from the same well it was interesting reading your new book and seeing puns and ideas and sort of uh psychedelic jokes and i was like oh there's a uh, cousin of this somewhere buried in one of my old notebooks i've <laughs> i've i've danced the uh coin and dance with this before and uh yeah very funny to see a lot of those parallels and i think also about the idea of owning ideas like people you know in conversation say something clever and someone's like oh my god we should do that i'm like it's free take it go run with yeah. it i have more <laughs> ideas than i can do anything with and yeah. if i can't tell you where like where they came from then how am i supposed to claim that they are in, in some way mine right uh, i mean I, it's, I just, a, it's always a it's a gray area when it comes to words because words are a social currency. While mm -hmm. at the same time, if words are your way of making a living, it becomes, you know, you, you might want to become like a word hog. You know, you might want to cling to your every word. But yeah. ultimately, so many common colloquialisms were at some point coined or minted by from somebody's tongue. And oftentimes we can't even trace it back. So, yeah. It is, it is the, that's the idea too of serving the lore. It's like, I am a servant of the lore, but I'm also here to serve the lore, you know, on a right, plate right. to, on a plate. <laughs> to <Yeah>. the community. <laughs> I think maybe the similarity of our, our sentiment towards language has to do too that we share a birthday. We're both April 28. Oh, children. I forgot about yeah. that. That's right. Yeah, that's it. Astrology. Boom. That's there we go. Boom. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though, like, do you think this sort of language play was something that you'd always engaged in and been fascinated by? Or did you have some sort of uh, transformational experience that brought you into it? I think it's always been there. Um, I'm also I'm from the Netherlands. So English mm -hmm. is actually my second language. Yeah. So maybe that gives me 
again, like a kind of liminal space where I have to take off my word robe, my Dutch word robe and slip into something else. And in that liminal space where you have, you take off language, Mm -hmm. maybe there's more um, wiggle room. When did you learn English? I learned it from watching TV when I was a kid. So by the time I was six, I spoke English almost fluently, but I would still, and this is probably also where it comes from is like misunderstandings, mishearings mm-hmm. or what I call dyslexia. Oh, it's like a kind of ecstatic <laughs> dyslexia. Uh, for instance, like when I was six, I would sing the theme song to Transformers, which is very fitting because the book now is called Impatient Transformations. Yeah. But I heard it as robots in the skies because I didn't know the word disguise. So yeah. again, that's where like disguise the limits comes from. You know, <laughs> it's like right. those little misappropriations, malappropriations that still that that kind of reveal or open up vistas onto new realities. So yeah. I've, I've become very attuned to kind of that malleability or like speaking wet roar shock so that <laughs> the the meaning comes secondary, which is, again, also like when you write a book, you're giving up authorship in a way. Like mm-hmm. I wrote this, I created this, but somebody else is going to read it and they're going to they don't necessarily know the orchard from which this fruit mm-hmm. came. They read it on their own. You don't they get to sit it. there and explain exactly. it as they are. Yeah. So, so to have that multidimensional slant in there, it gives the book more sur- surface depth, we'll say, you know, the, the surface wriggles with its own rippling depth yeah. and riddles. I think there's a bunch of water language that we're going to come back to in a moment, mm. but I know that with uh, being bilingual, it changes your brain layout in a way that like mm. there's a very clear neurological differences between people that are bilingual versus people that just speak one language. And if you miss that language cutoff where you can still learn another language, I mean, you can get to fluency later on, but your brain does not take on that other shape. Mm. It's, it's a different uh, format. Like a compartmentalized hard drive or something and it's like something set up like for that. like half mac half windows half dutch half english something yeah yeah, yeah exactly it gets it gets formatted An- early on another thing i think that i mean psychedelics have played a big part in my own evolution and education Shocking. yeah right <laughs> uh, that's something where breaking also the, news everybody <laughs> i got the exclusive scoop <laughs> like, like when you look at um kind of like enlightenment language or like things that, that a Buddha would say, for instance, a lot of times uh, there's a lot of puns and things and, and word plays and riddles yeah. worked into the language as well. And it's similarly when you get into a psychedelic space, maybe because you take off the cultural word mm-hmm. robe and step into this translinguistic space that the word starts kind of flopping around like a fish a little more yeah, uh, and becomes more malleable or ridiculous. Or you start thinking about these, these just assumed phrases you know like these manners mm-hmm. of speech that we we that go unquestioned and i look back at the netherlands too we have like little nursery rhymes where i'm like that is a very strange spell to just like cast into the world yeah yeah like a good example is the um uh when you have the hiccups in the netherlands we say now the first part is like jabberwock for the hiccups. It's kind of like, you know, and then it rhymes and it says, I give the hiccups to you. I give the hiccups to someone else who can endure the hiccups. And I'm like, what kind of crazy yeah. spell is this? It's like, I've got something. I can't handle it. You take it. If you can't handle it, give it on until someone can handle it. It's like, what? That's there's so much cultural uh, seeding in there. I mean, I think like living in a world where we have all of these as stock phrases and spells that we can use, 
seems like it would be nice because then, you know, like not everyone wants to improvise all the time. And so instead of, ah, I have the hiccups, what's a good hiccup spell? Mm -hmm. You're like, ah, I know it. I mean, how many situations are we in? And like, I find myself just being like, oh, fuck, oh, God damn it. Jesus, (laughs) fuck, oh, cry, oh, oh, that's, oh. It's like if Mm -hmm. I had, you know, the wish away pain spell that I could just rhyme to myself over and over, uh, might be a little bit nicer. Is it black magic, though, if you try to push your hiccups on someone else? without them first soliciting that they are willing to take it. <laughs> I mean, if you can trick them into taking it, sure. Right. But if, if you can, you know, if, if they're happy to take it and willing to endure it, then, you know, yeah. it's kind of like walking with someone and you're saying, hey, I'll, I'll take the heavier pack for a bit. Yeah, it's a willing, if they're a willing vessel, it's fine. Like, yeah. with consent, give your hiccups away with consent. Uh, but I was thinking uh, with all of these water metaphors that there is something about this liquidity of association and... Mm-hmm. That's why we like poetry and stuff. There's more of a flow to it than uh, a dry technical document. And right. a stream of consciousness. A stream of channeling. consciousness. Yeah, there's yeah, definitely almost. so much there. And there's a very, it's not a fine line. There's a very blurry morass where you can go from fun bits of punning and language play to the kind of stuff that if you're all on psychedelics, you're all in tears because you're having so much fun with all these random word associations and then i've seen it where it becomes like people where it's too wet they're having a hard time communicating because they're so in that psychedelic psychedelic language world or even manic states and schizophrenia and stuff can be associated with that do you know clanging that term no uh it's when people it's like a kind of manic thing where you're connecting more with the sounds of the words rather than the meaning. So kind of Mm. spiraling off into like rhyme and alliteration, but losing that coherence that I think uh, you ride that wave so well. Yeah, I feel I feel very fortunate in that sense that even though there have been times when I've lost my mind, my tongue Mm -hmm. is able to keep keep track, you know. Yeah. And that's another thing I was going to touch on to with the idea of psychedelics changing uh, the landscape of language is that uh, McKenna even alluded to this, and so did Brian Froud, who was the guy that designed um, the Dark Crystal and the Labyrinth, and he's mm. kind of a fairy folklorist, is that the realm of fae, the, the fairy realm, is often accessed through solving kind of linguistic riddles, or they, yeah. they respond well mm. to songs and riddles and poems and word plays because it has that spark of the non-dual or of the irrational in it. Mm-hmm. And I found at times when it, it it seemed my tongue was possessed by something fae-like yeah. and, and speaking in kind of Shakespearean prose or susical rhyme became very natural and the rhyme mm-hmm. would dictate the reason. Like we were saying, like the track is being set up as right. the words assemble, as the sentence mm-hmm. assembles. And it's even like comes as a surprise sometimes, but you can, you can anticipate almost like a... Uh, I'm seeing like the image of like a conveyor belt or a peasant dispenser where it like cycles around and puts the punctuation like right there to hit the perfect punchline. Yeah. And and that is those to me are probably my favorite moments of manic or shamanic inspiration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember doing coke when I was like 19 or something at a party and hadn't really done, you know, uh, coke much. I'd done other drugs. Um, and suddenly I was extremely high on coke and was like, oh no, I'm speaking in rhyme. <laughs> and I'll try and stop, but it only lasts a short time. And then there's another line that comes in rhyme. And my friends were like, yeah, okay, we get it. This is very nice, but like, please, please stop. And I was like, 
I can't right now. <laughs> I don't know how. And it just like kept going. I yeah. had to go sequester myself uh, in the backyard to just record voice memos because I was like this. Uh, yeah, use this it. Use it for everything you can. <laughs> um, what was your uh, first introduction to psychedelics? Originally, it's funny because I was kind of seduced into that realm through Hunter Thompson and through okay. the idea of fear and loathing. Yeah. And then my first trip was uh, I had moved to the United States. I was about 18 and I went back to Amsterdam and I'd started experimenting with marijuana and it mm-hmm. really worked very well with my creative pursuits at the time. And so I yeah. wanted to kind of like move on to the the bigger and better stuff. So I wanted to try out some mushrooms and ended up doing 28 fresh grams, which is like a heroic dose. It's like five dried grams. And they say you're supposed to take half of that as a beginner, but I did not get that memo. Right. (laughs) And I had accidentally fasted that day. So I got transcendentally blasted that night. And it started off very beautifully and kind of unwittingly stepped into another world where like post, like faces on posters would holographically extend. Mm -hmm. And I was just marveling at that and then realized that my cohorts did not see that. Yeah, that I was like so much deeper, further out and deeper in than than they were at that time. And eventually, um, and I wrote this whole piece down, there's a piece called The Trip Before the Fall that gets okay. into all the, the details. But uh, it ended up basically, I got blasted from my body somewhere a few hours <laughs> into that trip and had this outer body experience hovering over the streets of Amsterdam, where the human world had basically become transmogrified into a kind of impressionistic painting mm-hmm. where, and this is another thing that I've heard McKenna talk about. He's like, if you look at the world from far away, you don't <laughs> see people, you see gene swarms. And it was that, it was these, these swaths of information yeah. exchanging mm-hmm. between people and all the different languages. It was just like a, a bubbling babble pool of glossolalia where just yeah. all these all these foreign tongues merged together. And then at some point somebody came up to my face camera and was like, (laughs) and I was just like so far out, you know? And and as I was, as my perspective ascended, it was a very cinematic moment because it felt like, you know, the camera is craning up, the perspective is widening and Mm -hmm. a voiceover, I kid you not, a voiceover came in and it said in a very twilight zone manner, imagine a man who felt the need to take psychedelics, exposing him to the reality we've been trying to protect him from his entire (laughs) life. And I went on on an internal cosmic guilt trip at that point where I was like, I will lead a better life. Just bring me back amongst the fellow humans away from this insect world and like bring me back and I will lead a better life. And I talked about it like I had gone to hell and I would never do this again, but there was something that left such an impression on me that through trial and error and joy and terror, I mapped my way from fear and loathing to set and setting (laughs) and and found uh, bit by bit, remembered all the fragmented parts of myself and and ended up in what I think is a pretty um, sound and sane center yeah. perspective at the moment yeah yeah G- congratulations that's a thank you yeah that can be a difficult place to find and uh i think there is something interesting about those experiences though because they can be so uncomfortable or upsetting that i have had that arc so many times in a in a like you know in a span of a couple hours oh my god if i could be normal again i'm never gonna do this like what what yeah. was i thinking and then coming down being like 
ah, I feel pretty accomplished. That was pretty awesome. Like, yeah. I really, I really survived that. Like, good job, me. <laughs> yeah. Well, through experience, you you can kind of condition yourself to know, like, this is not going to be forever. You're going to come down mm. from it. The difficult moments you can integrate. But yeah. like, like, I forgot a few hours in that the state I was going through was because I had eaten some strange fruit. Of I didn't, yeah. no, there was no literature or, yeah. or no professing about this stuff. Like I had never heard McKenna. I had never heard Leary. Right. Like all I knew was like fear and loathing is like, you take this stuff, you'll have hallucinations. And those are something separate from yourself. Like a dwarf will walk up to you and it will be distinguishable as a hallucination and it will tap you on the hand and you'll go, ow, and your friends will laugh, you know, like yeah. that's what I was expecting. But then, realizing how integrated the seemingly external world and the world of hallucination was, uh, that was a big eye-opener for me into just, just relativity, I guess, and subjectivity, mm-hmm. Yeah, which a, lo- a lot of my practices now uh, through pareidolia, for instance, which is, you know, the perception of meaningful patterns in random data, like faces in the clouds or okay. things like that, which is a lot of my art I base just again, that aleatoric organization and then pulling the divine design to the foreground is a reminder of how we actually objectify reality. Mm-hmm. How there is no objective reality, but that the data taken in through the senses gets battered in our mental matters and yeah. instantaneously projected back outwards. Right. So becoming aware of that is like, um, I mean, it's the key to compassion and empathy, I think, first of yeah. all, and relativity and also just like a f- more fun way to be in the world. Yeah, I think uh, the, one of the things that I've gotten hung up on lately is that idea of kind of association and relation. And so we have a vocabulary, we have a grammar of what things are. And now when we look at the word cloud, we go, oh, that says, but, you know, like those could just be random letters, but they now fit into the pattern that we know. And so, yeah, we're projecting that pattern outwards, which can then have that feeling of being trapped in the pattern where, uh, mm. why would I go there? I know what it's going to be like. I've already projected an image in my mind of how that night will go, as right. opposed to the realization that you have absolutely no idea what it will be like. And your projection is a, your prediction is, is right. completely well, that's, false. We're talking about wet ink. And then you can talk about minds made of dried ink as well. You know, mm-hmm. the, the kind of bureaucratic, the municipal magic of the bureaucratic mind where it gets like, don't, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Especially living in a, in a post-facts uh, information deluge as we are now. Right. right. Yeah. Now, I'm curious because, like, you took this monster dose to get started. And have you found that your uh, experience with mushrooms now syncs up with the people around you or do you find yourself um, sometimes going a little further out or having it hit you in a different way than other people seem to experience definitely different yeah i'm not a social tripper yeah generally speaking like if i do it i want it to be with like just a few close friends or solo or just Mm -hmm. with my girlfriend yeah um and again like it was many years of mapping myself uh, Mm -hmm. through my art like to like yeah. understand the territory, you know, and yeah. understand the territory of my own psyche and more importantly of my own body mm-hmm. in which that psyche is integrated. So I think there were, there were more like dissociative visionary theatrics earlier on and times when I like went very, what I call astroverted. It's when you're so far in, it's far out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> <Because> absolutely. <laughs> you're basically having astral receptions and just like, you know, holding yeah. all this celestial energy and just running with it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which was really fun and and shamanic and yeah. and you know like a great high but then also again like mapping my way back to realizing like oh like maybe that's really intense for the people around yeah so i think i am i am more more socially attuned just generally nowadays mm-hmm. yeah uh, and I've reached a point now with uh, with psychedelics living in the jungle as well, where it's just like the perfect set in setting. Like mm-hmm. we're out in nature in the wilderness, but we have the comforts of home. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the perfect space and a space that I've been looking for for about 20 years on like uh, the subconscious back burner. At least like this was an intention I had set for myself. Like I want to live in nature uh-huh. with a partner, be able yeah. to explore my mind and body mm-hmm. to its outer limits and bring back gifts. And, and it feels like right now it's actually, I'm in a really good configuration with that wishful thinking has come to some kind of Beautiful. ongoing fruition. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect way to say that balance of inside and outside. Cause I think, you know, for most Americans, we'll just say you can have your home and that's cool. And then you go outside and it's like a hellscape of seven elevens and like yeah. rude people shoving past you with corporate like eight, sigils. Yeah. Like eight cigarettes in their hand, asking you some intense question that you can't comprehend. And you're like, ah, no. Or you're out in nature and you're like, this is beautiful. And then you're coming down and you're like, I wish that we had music and a comfy bed that I could lie down in yeah, yeah, and you can exactly. kind of have one or the other. So having both is pretty awesome. Yeah. Cause I spend a lot of times, um, conducting my rituals like by the riverside, you know, mm-hmm. which was amazing in that, you know, turn things inside out. But now, like you're saying, like having that ability to just like, now I want to lay down in my bed for a moment or, you know, now I want to put on some music or cook some food. Right. Uh, and plus like instead of running into the 10 cigarette, street rambler you might run into some fantastical creature like um we we came upon what my girlfriend rosa called an ongoing snail it was i like love a, that phrase yeah a very very long snail with like six to eight cthulhu-like tentacles yeah that was very interactive and hung out with us for many hours and even returned like a week later wow from its hiding place under the table for some more watermelon which seems to be its favorite <laughs> treat just like those things like i've always since I was a kid, been really drawn to kind of the non-human world, mm-hmm. uh, which again, like the limits of language, it's somewhere, language is such a human like artifact, such a human mm-hmm. um, behavioral trait. Like, of course, like animals have their own language as well to a degree, but we have a kind of symbolical language that yeah. cr- opens up a secondary space. And so like interfacing with the non-human world keeps the animal part of myself or the, the vegetable part of myself alive and attuned as well and also snails are are you know they they're drawn to moisture they come out after mm-hmm. the rain so True. uh that that liquidy mushroomy otherworldly uh just pull, kind of pulls that out of what would mm-hmm. otherwise seem like a dry reality yeah yeah snails are very much um a kind of spirit animal or mascot for me along mm-hmm. the way like in 2004 i wrote a short susical tale called the eternal snail convention that i've carried with me as a kind of bardic oratory storytelling uh thing that i share with people but that was never published and over the last few years i've like taken some stabs at starting to illustrate it and while i was doing that i was invited to come to the jungle in mexico to live in a snail-shaped house which was very attuned to that yeah so when uh when the ongoing snail that we know as HP long snail showed up, it was very much, well, my girlfriend went looking for a snake and mm-hmm. also had a moment of dyslexia, I guess, because she came back with a very long snail. 
uh, it very much a felt like mistake. a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like a a gift from some other dimension of like, here is your your avatar. Here is your yeah. your spirit to take you to the next step of it. So. Whereas in America, she would have come back with like a crumpled Wendy's bag and you'd be like, <laughs> yeah. ah, it's harder to find the, Which the puns. Which in that state, in I might have been very happy with that as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a balance because I think there is some importance of appreciating the uh, the naturalness of our co- so-called unnatural world. Like this is all, <laughs> this is all yeah. unspooled from the same thread. There's no sure. line of distinction other than the ones that we make. But I can say that in theory, and then I don't want to go into the 7-Eleven when I'm tripping face. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. It's hard for me to appreciate the, the majesty and wonder. Yeah. Yeah, but finding that sweet spot between nature and culture, I think there's some real, real growth that can happen yeah. there. Yeah. Now, do you feel like these uh, these words and language patterns just kind of pop out at you all the time? Are you just always kind of collecting them? Uh, what is the environment that you you cultivate these in? I think it's a, it's just by paying attention. I think mm. I've heard I've heard magic described as that. Like magic is really just paying attention. Yeah. Like when you when you push your attention upon the world and you start. You, you suspend your disbeliefs, your beliefs and your expectations. Um, and it, it takes a kind of madness because it means also yeah. like I'm constantly in a kind of disrupting, like disrupting myself even mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it becomes a matter of paying attention and recognizing when something is seemingly worthwhile to yeah. keep around, which was also in the compiling of this book. I had to kind of play natural selection, see right. like yeah, yeah. which phrases remain relative and relevant to the other ones to get the stick around, you know? Well, in journalism, there's that, uh, that expression, you have to kill your darlings. And that's something that I have had to learn in my writing because my natural writing style is like soupy, alliterative wordplay, which is very fun. And when you go back later, you're like, Oh, this is so confusing and not clear for a reader. (laughs) And you have to cull that and kind of solidify it a little bit. I think. Yeah. I think of it as like, you start off with a kind of, um, you, you you craft a wilderness, a Jungian jungle, if you will, yeah. that's just like full of rich... A jungle. Yeah, jungle, yeah. yeah. Full of rich soil. And then all <laughs> you have to do is you take the machete of the editor yeah. to it yeah. and start chopping away until you get these nice, clear uh, Edward Scissorhand, like sculpted shrubbery. Right, right. Uh, so that it's like, that's something over time, because I get to be very indulgent in my writing as well mm-hmm. when I let it off the leash, um, to rein it back in and to see like, what am I actually trying to get across like is this like this is a nice flair but is it important or does it get in the way of yeah you know a clear transmission so i think that's part of the maturation process of writing and also why it's taken me this long to start actually putting stuff out there in published form you think that the the, just the kind of the task of of cutting things down was something that was new for you or strained it it's always i mean editing is always a part of writing it's just yeah. that i've accrued so much material over time that mm. at times it can feel like a palimpsest you know like which is when you're like typing on top of other typings and it just becomes right. like a inkwell um and also over time just like my own thinking and what i've been because ex- it's not so much that I, I have an idea of like this is what i'm exploring and it's very clear and i'm just like yeah. putting things in these um shape sorted boxes or something there's it's very much um a distillation process 
And mm-hmm. so like as I'm getting older and amassing more work, it's becoming clearer, kind of like the core of what it is that I'm trying to convey uh, and which makes it easier to cut away the things that are not that, you know, my friend, yeah. Wes, my friend Wes said something about gold. He's like, truth is kind of like gold, not in that you recognize it by how it shines, but in that the parts that are not gold fall away mm. over time and just like reveals the core of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. I think, um, I'm, I'm curious about, do you think in your pursuit of truth, you've honed finding it or you've become more comfortable with playing around with words and ideas and, uh, and just sort of sharing that as something for somebody else to chew on. I think this, the latter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I do consider myself, um, a kind of an ambassador of the Rorschach, you know, like, yeah. Uh, I like to say I'm not here to solve the mystery. I'm here to serve the mystery. Right, right. Like I'm not trying to, uh, I'd like things to get clarified, but I'm also kind of like um, a slave to my own stylistic uh, acrobatics, you know, like yeah. there's there's something about just the process and the, the play, the Play-Doh of the presence, the ability to just like mm-hmm. mold sound and mold language in a way um, that's that's to me more, and it's also maybe the thing that gets lost in a in a post-truth world, mm-hmm. you know, in like a world of fake news and things like that. Like if only the news could embrace the poetry of the moment more rather than this kind of like liveless factuality or unfactuality, you know? Absolutely, because I think that's that's what's gotten lost is when people tell themselves that they're being objective and the facts will speak for themselves, they're losing the entire argument, which is that humans speak in emotional terms and the facts yeah. are the things that we then hold on to to justify the rationalizations we've come to through emotional stories. So I'm much more happy to believe that I am fighting global pedophiles as part of the QAnon network even if the facts don't fit the picture, then read some boring story about interest rates rising that doesn't <laughs> speak to me as a human. Yeah, where's the poetry of the marketplace? Oh, all around us. And that's seven eleven when you're tripping balls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, I think I've always been fascinated by just the different modes of expression that people come to naturally, where some people, you know, play music and it's like, ah, it makes so much sense. I've found any music theory to just be absolutely unintelligible and it doesn't work for me. Whereas language and writing and words, I think we're both pretty natural word wizards and, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm, I see a situation in an analogy. It's like a restaurant and we're serving, you know, all of that kind of stuff just comes comes really naturally. Now, in the wider culture, puns are, are pretty looked down upon. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like if you're good at punning, you get a lot of groans. Why do you think, I mean, one, do you experience that? I'm sure you do. And like, what, why, and why do you think that is that people are like, ugh, when it's like, hey, that was a pretty like masterful word connection that someone just yeah. made. I, I've given this a lot of thought. Um, I've, I've lost connections with people because they would frown at mm-hmm. wordplay at times. Yeah. At like, like you're saying, like pretty good moments. Like there is such a thing as a bad pun, you know? Right. And there's also a thing called a punning contest. Mm-hmm. And people have told me, they can, they're like, hey, you should join that. And I say puns belong in context, not contests. I like that. Um, but the thing is too, like, it's considered a kind of lowbrow humor, but the word pun comes from punctilio, 
which just means nuance. And of course, mm. people have a kind of aversion to nuance. But then what is the nuance that the pun brings? Like, is it a rotating door into multiple meanings at once, multiple right. ways to view things? It's a disrupting technology built into the language because it makes us aware of the fabric of our consciousness, the mm-hmm. fabric of our reasoning, communication and perception. And that's that's like watching a movie and becoming aware of the of the cuts of the editor, which should be the invisible task. Right. So. Right. But what it does, too, is it, I think it calls, if it's used the right way, and that's debatable what that is, yeah. is that it can call people out of their immersion in the landscape of language and become aware of kind of where those limits are, again, of where language ends and reality takes over, where the language mm-hmm. of the body takes over or where a figure of speech traps you in a particular way of seeing the world. Right, right. Getting caught in the metaphor and not being able to see that there's the space of possibility outside of uh, outside of the sentence that you're trying to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, uh, I'm an advocate of a kind of um, abyss malleability, like the okay. abyss malleable reality. Like there is, yeah. for me, the abyss or the void. It's just the, the sense of like the translinguistic mm-hmm. reality, and then with whatever wardrobe we we clothe that, we can shift and shape that. In different ways, yeah. Well, I think one of the things that came to me is that puns are also a form of sort of hypertext. Like, uh, if you're reading an article on Wikipedia and it's linking out to other pages, mm. it's connecting these pages in this web. And if you're reading, uh, some, or if you're hearing something that has a pun in it, it's connecting two things. And yeah. I think if that's relevant then it's beautiful. But if it's just a pun for no reason, then it feels like I'm reading this article. Why are you linking out to John Mayer's discography? Like that, that, like (laughs) I don't need that link here. Like you can just say John Mayer. I don't need to link to his all music page. And uh, it feels kind of um, distracting perhaps. No, I agree. I think it's that exactly what you're describing, that kind of like the the tasteful application of it with a kind of buildup and release, Mm -hmm. you know, like where you're setting up the meanings of the word and then you can, drop a single word that can ripple yeah. on multiple facets that you've built up like yeah. your, your name your last name person yeah uh you know it's like like persona it comes from mm-hmm. being of sound like through sound right mm-hmm. like a persona was a mask with a megaphone for a mouthpiece through which yeah. the sound of the orator would travel and um during an early writing project which was actually called persona at the time it was this notion of um God as a kind of DID deity, like a dissociative identity deity, kind of the Vedanta idea of God as a kind of hide and seek avatar Mm -hmm. who who casts himself into matter and loses himself in the role play. And I saw it as kind of like the persona is the mask through which the voice travels and creates a ventriloquist distinction between sources, Mm. right? So I was setting up these thought processes and then there's this whole chapter about Uh, these musicians, like finding their common communication, like telling a story Mm. without perspective, just through the sound. Right. And then at the end, it kind of like brings it back together of how, you know, these personas, like through the sound, find their their unity, their common unity again. So like these these things where you, you have to take a kind of detour to imbue the pun with its potency rather than it just being like, like, like like clown nose honk in the middle of the sentence. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
that weirdly makes me think I was watching The Sopranos last night and there's a moment where there's an agent who's from the U.S. Marshals and his name is McLuhan and this nurse goes, wait, is your name Marshall McLuhan? And he's like, (laughs) yes. And like the mafia character is like, what the fuck are you all talking about? And like, and I was thinking about it, I'm like, okay, that is some writer being clever and funny injecting that into this episode because they thought it was funny and they didn't want to kill their darling and they were just like great like let's go for this joke but then is i think that rabbit hole that you and i are fond of hopping down where McLuhan is somebody who talks about language in media so right. it's not just a pun for no reason but if you click into that now that opens this meta metaphor about yeah. how are we talking about the culture of television and the references and the editing and all of these things that create a sensory conscious experience that is different than if we were used to, uh, you know, telling oral stories to the beat of a drum. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of it, right. Is creating the, the tapestry of references so that each, like I always like to think of it in terms of like a fruit coming out from a certain tree in a certain orchard. And the more you get to know the landscape, the more you'll understand the fruit instead of just having just a painting mm. you understand the person it came from and the orchard it the, grew the up terra in noir. The, yeah 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 the, the, how much light how much dark yeah they uh, they had to avert or grow towards to get that fruit out that strange fruit out to the people mm-hmm. yeah well I, I i think one of the things that's fascinating me in this conversation and especially reading your book is um I remember like a a friend of mine that I met in New York. I was like, oh, we didn't physically grow up next to each other, but like in the cultural imaginal landscape, our houses are next door because we had so many shared reference points and stuff. And like, you know, like just kind of culture, we could talk about it. And I feel like you and I have come to similar places of language and play, despite the fact that like I didn't grow up in the Netherlands (laughs) learning English from TV. And one of the spaces that I have found to be sort of the most delightful is when I'm around other people that are on psychedelics. If I'm on psychedelics, I'm busy having my own experience and, you know, I'll play with words and stuff, but I'm not able to just kind of sit there in the relaxed state of, oh, you two are tripping? Oh, great. Let me just flip that switch in my brain. (laughs) Like, I can, I can not even, not even regale, but like drop those little, like, you know, time puns. You had like a great poem in the piece about time. And it's one of those things where you're using all of those idiomatic expressions of, you know, just kind of a way of walking around this concept to yeah. see it from different, you know, if we talk about being on time or is the, is this now or is now when, and all of these little references give us like these, these hooks into it. And so I'm curious of where, you're a performance artist, you're an author. When you're an author, you don't get to sit with people. But where do you feel like you are able to most pull people into these um, language uh, mazes you've devised? Um, like, when do you see in, other people grok it the most? Yeah, yeah. Well, that is that is a good point, because if you put a book out or if you put a podcast out, you don't get to interact with your audience as much as if it's like a live event. And I think that mm. just in-person conversation or oration is kind of where where it happens most communally i think where it gets most communally grokked but even like in having a conversation with you right now like there's more you know like at least we we can have that interactivity um but yeah i think a lot of 
unless it's like a theatrical experience, which I used to do. I used to do more like um, when I was younger, I did poetry slams a few mm-hmm. times, but I found it was more about the dramatic monologue than it was about an appreciation for the language. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, finding that that space is still something I, I guess I'm either looking for or it's looking for me. Yeah. But yeah, if, just like in speaking to people or um, figuring out what somebody is trying to come to terms with, which is another term I really like, the coming mm. to terms. It's really mm. just like finding the terminology with right. which to terminate uh, that level of mystery so you can move up in it. You know, like you understand something, you've been able to frame it, you can move beyond it. Determine yeah. where you want to go. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it, it makes me think a little bit about finding the perfect tennis partner. Like if you're playing the game with people who don't pun, you're like, that was such a good pun. And they're like, uh, boo, <laughs> go away. And you're like, oh, well, that sucks. And then when you find somebody where, you know, you throw out one of these down, little pithy yeah. things and they're like inverting it. And then you're like finding new meaning. Then it becomes this third thing that is neither – one person or the other's monologue, but is this um, rotating, self-generating snowball of yeah. language and inside joke folding in on itself, uh, which is in some ways, I think like one of the most important psychedelic experiences and one that gets lost in this modern Michael Polonization of, uh, <laughs> do you want to take mushrooms? You should go and do it with a blindfold on a psychiatrist, right. which is fine. Like, that's great. You know? Um, or it seems like the other option, you know, that people are like, Oh, I'm going to go to a big festival and like you know, right. see fish or something. But I'm like, Oh no, like four friends, five friends or yeah. a campfire. Yeah. Like that's where you can really get into those language games in a fun way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's the, the people you surround yourself with, the company you keep is going to make all the difference in how it allows the expression yeah. to play like if you can create a kind of communal playpen for expression then people pick up what you put down you know and they right. might add to it and and it's also a way of world building i feel mm-hmm. That's you know, one like my, my girlfriend and i have a lot of these kind of like inside jokes and yeah like yeah. one word storytelling like these yeah. little references that that um kind of thread us through time you know through like shared yeah. experience and that's when we first got together that was one of the things i really realize like the preciousness of our connections and what's at stake in a relationship is the the loss of a language like if you were after a certain amount of time to part ways you lose all those yeah. frames of references all those inside jokes that almost like telepathy that you yeah the lore conditioned the lore exactly yeah. And I think that is one of the things that we're dealing with as a culture. Um, you know, diversity is positive. I, I, I'm not I'm not saying we need to go form an <laughs> ethno state, but I see how when you have a more homogenous culture, there are the shared reference points that you take for granted, which lets people just kind of move more fluidly through mm-hmm. that because, ah, we both know Transformers, we both know this and that. And I think even just recently, even in the last couple decades, we're not going into the offense and saying, oh my God, did you see Seinfeld last night? Oh, right. that was, you know, we've lost that. And so everyone's sort of in their mm. own head being like, what reference point do I even have? What What is this person going to get? So where do you, fi- where do you find, where do you find the, the, the common unity with people mostly? Like what are the, the talking points? Like I like to like, 
talk about books or movies or what dreams you might have had or things like that? Like, where do you find your water fountain, mm. your communal water fountain talk? Well, you know, I became a wizard because I, I like talking about magic and I wanted to trick people into having more conversations with me about magic. So um, wizardry is actually one of the things that is very helpful because instead of just being the guy that's making a bunch of puns for no reason, people are like, oh, he's a wizard. So he's giving, yeah. you know, uh, mysterious answers and like playing with you. So that that's fun. Um, in terms of culture, I think I, I'm I'm such a little cultural sponge. I love, you know, um, good television and obsessive music listening. And I, I read voraciously. Um, so I'm always trying to be aware of the best ways to share those things from my experience without giving people extra homework. Yeah. Uh, I think when I was younger, I had, a, oh my God, you got to see this thing. And now if you like, if you tell somebody you got to see a TV show, you're like, here's what you should do with like 25 hours of <laughs> yes. your life. It's like, that's it's kind of a lot. It's probably 12 seasons. You'll, you'll <laughs> in blow the first through four it in a week. Bad, but you got to watch them for the lore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I try and have a non-pretentious like, oh, here's a fun thing. Would you like, let me ask for consent. Would you like to learn about this thing that I want to mm -hmm. share with you? Because I will tell you all about like, you know, the weird African jazz I've been listening to, but only if you care and your eyes aren't glazing over as we speak. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I talk to people for a living. So I think just, you know, asking probing questions and trying to figure out uh, where to crack their nut is, is yeah, also yeah. a fun game. <laughs> it's funny too. Cause you, you said you became a wizard because you wanted to talk to people about magic more. I have a, I, I don't necessarily outwardly identify as a wizard. I don't introduce myself as a wizard, but yeah. I did have a moment where I became a wizard. Mm. And it was an interesting thing. And it's actually related to these poetry slams. Yeah, uh, I was on my way to do a live painting event okay. in North Carolina at the Leaf Festival, Lake Eden Arts Festival, circa uh -huh. 2005. And I was painting with a local funk band and I arrived at their house and the partner of one of the musicians opened up the door topless and she's like, oh, yeah, come on in. Uh, we'll be right there. Just hang out. And I'm hanging out and her like, five-year-old so daughter. What's that? I said, so she. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, her five-year-old daughter named Nira Maya, which means without mm -hmm. illusion, sits mm -hmm. down next to me and looks at me. And trying to think how this conversation went. She goes, shall I make you a wizard? And I turn nice. to her and I say, I already am a wizard. And she goes, no, you're not. <laughs> and I kind of had to like gather my yeah. myself in a moment like, wait, what happened? I said, what do you mean? How do you know? She says, because I haven't made you one yet. Ooh. I was like, okay. And she goes, shall I make you a wizard? And I was like, okay. And then she puts her hand over my face, hovers it over my face. Mm -hmm. And she says, your wish is my demand. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is fun. That's that. Okay, thank you, Niramaya. Yeah. And then later that weekend, I did uh, the poetry slam and I got up there and I spoke and the wind kicked up at like the right time. My hair was like blowing in the wind mm -hmm. while I was speaking. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, are you Michelangelo, the man with a voice like a wizard? And I was like, wow. thank you, Niramaya. Yeah. <laughs> Integrated. There we go. Everyone gets initiated in their own way. Right. Um, I'm curious because you, you brought up wizardry, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. And you mentioned earlier about um, your space out in Tulum where you, you, you kind of have a space to do your rituals. Mm -hmm. What kind of rituals, I mean, care, uh, share whatever you care to share. Uh, what sort of rituals and practices do you have that are 
I mean, it's always a blurry line between what is creative practice and what is magic practice, but I'm curious about the more magical practice side of things. Um, How would I describe it? Um, It usually, it starts off, it's like a a weekly ritual with my girlfriend where, Mm -hmm. um, especially during the making of this book, I would do weekly check-ins with with a certain lysergic uh, amplification tool. Mm. Uh, And what we would do is we would, First, we'd clean up the place, set everything yeah. straight, take out the things that we need, put away mm-hmm. the things we don't need, set intentions, um, and then kind of check in with yeah. myself and, and start listening to the signs around. And a lot of times, signs coming from nature, like uh, whether it's a creature we discover that has something uh, to impart or to like spin my mm-hmm. mind off in a different direction. Uh, and then I would reflect back on the work that I'd done that week mm-hmm. and I would receive information for what was to come. So it is, it's kind yeah. of like, I guess, temporal investigations are okay. a way to kind of frame the ritual that I do. I try to time shift or time yeah. loop or feel ahead in time for things that I need to mm-hmm. realize, yeah. to, to reify in a way. So I, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. So that's, yeah. A, that's a big part of it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I can, like beyond that, it's a lot of, it's just like paying attention and mm-hmm. um, noticing when something is dropped in my consciousness deposit box, whether it's like, it's a feeling that comes up like a musical thing that's coming through yeah. lyrics that are forming in a certain way that begin to answer a question that I had formed yeah. or that somebody else had formed. Um, like for instance, um, my girlfriend Rosa, she went in, she was like, I'm going to read a bunch about simulation theory and I want to like ask some questions about that. And somehow I was the one that night that watched as the dogs were sleeping and twitching their pods, thinking they were running, mm-hmm. that then assembled itself into a poem that I en- ended up putting in the book called Man's yeah. Best Friend. That's about mm-hmm. kind of the dogs the dreaming that they're gods, they're yeah. dreaming that they're running and running the simulation yeah. and yeah. all this stuff. So. It's a lot. Of, I guess. I guess it's forms of divination of kind of summoning, rather than waiting for the divine design to make itself available, is to kind of summon the divine design to see what I'm hiding in my own mm-hmm. illuminated unconscious that can be um, teased to the foreground without yeah. my own uh, my ego interfering with that. Well, it sounds to me like a little bit of like imaginal exploration. And I, I want to just highlight, underline, uh, put put in bold what you said about cleaning up, because I think that is one of the wonderful parts of magic that gets overlooked often of the preparation that you do to just clear out your space and get everything set up and put things in the right order Um changes your reality because no matter what your ritual or psychedelic experience or little magical adventure does at least you come back and your house is clean and then you're like oh all right like that that kind of helps me move forward in a different way um i can't imagine trying to do very successful magic surrounded by like domino's pizza boxes and ashtrays and just being like that's that's, that's what they call chaos magic (laughs) well the cleaning up part that's kind of the Jordan Peterson part of the magic you've got to clean your room before you start looking out there for ongoing snails yeah I can't believe that he was the first person to invent making your bed in the morning right isn't that funny trailblazer I mean it's working out well for him the lost art of cleaning one's room (laughs) yeah (laughs) but then I think what you're talking about is um, similar to a practice I have called mystic tokes where it's a way of you know smoking a small amount of weed and not 
watching TV or being distracted by the world, but just dancing with ideas, which means kind of like thinking about them from every angle and bumping into them Mm -hmm. and seeing where they lead. And then suddenly having those moments of epiphany and connection and realization and uh, then coming back to scramble and write some stuff down in a notebook. Yeah, no, it's, it's very valuable to have those, um, whether it's a digital detox or just a stepping away from the the regular pattern of events mm-hmm. in order to like reconfigure. Like somebody once told me, they're like, you can drop acid and you can completely change your pattern, but you can just pick it back up if right. you want afterwards. So that's always an option. Uh, yeah. So I, I try to kind of like shatter that as much as I can in order to... Um, reassemble myself in the most fortuitous way possible however i do notice that if i'm not on a particular mission Mm -hmm. like if i'm not working on or towards something there are moments in there where i question the magic like did the magic leave you know and Mm. i I was thinking about that this past week i went to the the korean spa here i got to do some like good cycling through like ice water and hot water and saunas and things got to go inward and i had kind of like a uh, a replaying of one of these moments when it felt like the magic left and then moments later it actually returned yeah but i got to see the mechanism which was kind of like imagine you're reading a book and the words disappear and the worlds bloom from that right so similarly the little voice in our head is doing its narration and at times if you're tripping or just in an inspired mm-hmm. state that narration becomes worlds like the word yeah. the silent tongueless phantom Word, voice and the phantom word blooms into worlds and then there's moments when it doesn't and when it's just like a little tape loop mm-hmm. playing out in the emptiness and those are the moments when i'm like uh, did the magic leave am i just like why is it not clicking in um and oftentimes also the intention that i will set when i'm looking for something whether it's an element of story or a question i'm looking to answer or an inspiration i'm looking to summon it comes at the moments when i've let it go and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm holding it and I'm like, wait, what is, oh, oh, it's here. Oh, cool. I didn't see the delivery yep. guy. Like it's already arrived. That's one of my favorite mantras is you're standing on it. Like, no, that's beautiful. Yeah. You're looking all over for everything. Where'd it go? You're standing on it. And I, I get asked this a lot and I've, you know, gone through my own journeys with this, but I think we have this modern idea of like, ah, the goal is to be enlightened, perceptual, uh, perpetual perceptual bliss enlightenment satisfaction all all just ongoing if i fall out of that i fucked it up somehow and it's like a relationship you know someone that you love dearly if you never leave their side that changes the character and quality of the relationship whereas if you're away from each other for a week or so on then you come back and you're like oh my god i missed you i appreciate you like ah this is there's the magic the great hide and seek yeah and i think that's what's really learning to appreciate and play that game to not get lost for long periods where you get really scared and freaked out and it feels like it's gone for good. But learning to lose track of it for long enough that when you step back into it and you go, oh my God, there we go. Okay, that's that's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) There is one instance, and this is also, I guess, part of my ritual practice is I'm always looking for the genius loci, which is like the resonant (laughs) spirit of a place. Yeah. Um, And while I was in the desert in Arizona for a while and I was working on on a film that I was shooting a music video. Uh, I had found 
a mask that was like an old piece of a saguaro, like a nest inside a saguaro that was looking at me from the ground. And I picked it up and it was like a perfect like Rorschach mask. Like when you see it in the video, you see a face, but there is no face. So it's a very trippy thing. And while I was editing it, whenever I'd look at that face, it gave me a particular phrase, which I'm not going to put it on the air right now. But um, that phrase, it's kind of a nonsense word with a particular resonance that to me sounds almost like an open sesame or mm. a genius loci reveal mm. yourself. Right. And in that moment, uh, a couple weeks ago in the jungle where I felt the magic had left as I was walking and just kind of feeling like my antennas are feeling around, like, where is it? Where, where do I go? Where, where do my thoughts go? It dropped back in the same words mm. dropped in and it like hit me with this inspiration where it like yeah. it opened up the genius loci of this location. So right. that's, that's kind of like a, a gift from the realm of Faye in a way where yeah. it gives you literally like a magic word or a key word or a configuration that opens up a world of association into yeah. something beyond the veils. Absolutely. I think the power of place is that it's pregnant with possibility that, you know, you're talking about time magic a moment ago. And that's pretty much my whole my whole deal is how do you appreciate that the thing that you want to do in the future exists in the future not in the singular future but in a future Mm -hmm. and if that is a big enough cool enough thing it's got to have some sort of gravity pull resonance the same way that you know if you were a traveler and you were looking out across the dark forest you might be able to see the glow of a campfire and go Mm -hmm. ah that's the direction i want to go and that seems like (laughs) i will be warm when i get there and so um learning to find those in a place so full of those learning to trust that it's got its own configurations yeah. and so when yeah, you tidy it up scramble everything and then you can come back to what seems at first to be like the same pattern that you left but then there's subtle changes that yeah. now take you towards a slightly different future and that's exactly the subtle changes like not the um the crown of enlightenment the plateau of enlightenment or the, yeah. the peak experience and wanting to sustain that but it's like mm-hmm being able to gather a little bit of warmth from that flame that you get to carry out of the experience so as to recreate it. That's the true recreative or recreative drug use, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a beautiful metaphor there of it's, you know, there's the mystic that wants to not just be by the campfire, but be immolated in the flames. Like that Mm. is the goal is Mm. to become the flame itself, to be that light, which means, you know, physical excruciating pain and uh, non-existence, but Hey, that's their trip. Whereas (laughs) I think what you and I are talking about is how do we take a a branch from the fire and then go poke around in the woods to see if we can see some cool bugs and rocks and shit. Mm -hmm. Or a a dragon's head glowing uh, in the embers. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, speaking of dragon's head glowing in the embers, uh, let's come up with a spell. What's a little piece of uh, ungoogleable magic that uh, the listeners can bring into their own lives? You know, something that comes up is a poem. It's part of a song that I used to perform with my band called Internity. Okay. And I can try this out. This is like a a short poem that we could recite as a spell, which is, it goes like this, give us language to express the timing of the endlessness. Give us language to impress our forms upon the emptiness. As interns of eternity, in turn we shall eternal be. Oh, I like it. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna transcribe it and put it in the show notes. Okay, so, great. So it'll be easier for everyone to uh, sing follow along. along with. But <laughs> yeah. uh, that's good because that that I think that takes us full circle. I think looping so. back through time now we have our own version of our hiccup curse that <laughs> yes. we can use to uh get over those hiccups when we feel like we've lost the magic and uh re-immerse ourselves in that uh immersive experience of being beautiful thank you yeah And for more of the ungoogleable Michelangelo's magic, well, guess what? You can actually Google him. Or you can skip that and go to theungoogleable.com, where you can find all of the things that he does, which is pretty much everything. He's got a podcast. Uh, he's got art. He's got written and spoken word. He's making music. He's made films. He's got this book. Uh, there's so much going on. And I, in fact, will be on his podcast, Self-Portraits of Other People, uh, coming up in the near future. So that might be now or later or very soon, depending on when you're listening to this. And for more of the timey-wimey wordplay and wizardry of this podcast as a ritual, you can, of course, go to www.patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual where you can give me money, which I'll use to make more podcast content. And then I'll skim a little cream off that top and put it in the Patreon only section just for you. So you get a little bit more of that magic to make our reality collectively slightly better. So I've got nothing more to say. I've run out of words to play. So we'll just leave it with the classic line that you all know so well. And I know that you know it because I believe in you. Your magic is real. <laughs>